Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on the Gospel of John. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're studying Lesson 7, which looks at John Chapter 5, where the Apostle John tells us of Jesus' meeting another individual very different from the Samaritan woman or the royal official who had a sick son that we studied last week. In that lesson, we learned that those people just simply believed in Jesus by believing in his word. Verse 50 in chapter 4 says, The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And later when he realized that his son was healed at the very same time that Jesus told him that his son would live, he and his whole entire household uh, ended up believing on him. So trust and belief are so, so critical to developing a strong and lasting relationships in all areas of life, whether it's with our um, friends or spouses, Think back on the best relationships you have in your life, whether that's with your spouse or your friend. That relationship is strong because of trust established around what you know about the character of that trustworthy person. And so it is with God. God is trustworthy because he is worthy and he has explained himself in his word and the world around us shows us how loving and how caring, how beautiful, how majestic are his ways, how just and how faithful he is. And his character is far above the flimsy, willy-nilly attitudes of our character in our lives. Those of us who have known God for a while in our lives, we can with a certainty say he is who he says he is, and we can trust him. When we as Christians say we believe in Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior, we are trusting into everything God has said about himself, everything that he is and everything he says he will do through his son, the promised Messiah. We cannot go any further into the ages to come without believing into this very important fact and without believing into all that he has said and revealed to us by the name of Jesus, revealed glory of God that is in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. The man in that situation merely trusted Jesus at his word and he saw great things happen. I hope you can remember that for your life today. But before I go on, uh, there's a couple of announcements for you. Uh, one is regarding giving again. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to repeat this uh, for uh, another few weeks because we are approaching the end of the year when a bulk of kind of nonprofit donations and giving is done. And I just wanted to uh, put before you that BSF is entirely funded by the love gifts of people like you. If you're thinking about where to give in the end of your giving for Thanksgiving and Christmas, we hope that you will keep BSF in mind. While this study is entirely free, always free, it does cost the organization $130 for each person every year to keep BSF operating. And also, um, those of you who have children who might benefit from the same, very same materials that you do, but uh, kind of uh, made simpler for kids' levels, uh, they do have, we do have in our region, a BSF kids and student version available that also meets on Tuesday nights. So if you know of young people who could benefit from what you are learning, but cater to their age level, and uh, this is such an important and really enriching material, our local BSF teachers invite you to introduce them to the BSF kids and students version online. Uh, we have four age group levels, everywhere from elementary to high school. And um, if you'd like to, as an adult, sit in and try them out, please get in touch with us at Bible Study NSF in San Francisco. So that's Bible Study in INSF at gmail.com, and we'll connect you to the children's director who is in charge of that, and he'll uh, send you the Zoom link for you to try it out. All right, going back to our passage. So today, John introduces us to a different kind of individual from the others we have studied. Uh, he's not a member of the cultural elite, and he is not a social outcast like the Samaritan woman. 
He has no authority or rule like the royal official. This man is someone struggling with the condition of his own body, the limitations that make him so aware of his own fragility and vulnerability. So wherever we might be, we can identify with that, right? Our society is so, so very carnal. Um, everything around us revolves around our body. We live in a culture that adores the flesh. You know, young people work out so much these days. Uh, it's almost their religion, not so much for health, but for kind of the muscles and to look good. We get noticed by the shape of our figure, the vitality of our form. There's a second layer of beautification that we focus on in clothes and accessories, the hairstyles we decorate ourselves with. More recently, though, people have started to use their bodies for other uh, things like tattoos and body piercings and, and major surgeries, too. It's the most concerning of body-based sense of self people are trying to um, reconfigure. Uh, so there are those who are so uncomfortable with how their bodies make them feel they undergo serious surgeries and procedures to remake themselves into a vision that they think will make them happy and at peace. Um, the body, for many, is central to their happiness. People believe that the body is the basis by which we gain our sense of self, the most important sense of self and identity, happiness and contentment, such that a skewed view makes people neglect the inner person, the spiritual person, in place of a singular focus on their body and their body image. Isn't that how we see things go wrong in clear view of ourselves as human beings in need of God? You know, it, it takes away and distracts us once again from a focus on God, who is the maker of our lives, who gives us the breath that we breathe. Do you remember the story of the portrait of Doreen Gray? Uh, this section uh, reminds me of this story written by Oscar Wilde the man who made a pact or a deal with the devil so that he could stay young forever, while all the effects of age and his sinful, very sinful uh, lifestyle uh, got transferred into a large portrait painting of himself, which he hid away in the dark recesses of his attic where no one could see it. But every time he sinned or every time he aged, every time he was injured, all of those things were transferred onto his portrait and not to his body. And his good looks made him over time, increasingly more and more vain and more and more uh, self-deceptively uh, self-content. And it deceived him from seeing who he really was on the inside. And eventually, his sins snowballed so large and out of control, he ended up, it ended up destroying him. This story, uh, again, written by a very well-known uh, author, Oscar Wilde, is one of the, who is one of the earliest openly British gay men who lived in the mid-1800s. He was wrestling with the very thing about the body, the pitfalls of the flesh, the traps of sensuality and lust. We know from experience that the body does not help us build character or give us true life. True life must come from the giver of life. So today we are looking at the one who has the authority to give us that true life. He is not only the creator of our bodies, but the redeemer of our fallen and corrupted souls. The person in this chapter is a person who re represents all of us, who feel like our bodies or the material circumstances of life get in the way of our happiness and fulfillment. Jesus meets him at the pool, where there was apparently a lore or some superstitious belief about running into it and being the first one to receive some uh, mysterious healing. So verse 4 may be left out in your, in your Bible. Uh, it might be in your footnotes there. Because not all ancient manuscripts have this portion in its passage, and the reason why that has been left out 
is itself an interesting scholarly study that um, I don't have time for here to discuss more in depth, but you can be assured that it doesn't have to do with corruption of the scripture. Uh, suffice it to say for right now that the disabled were gathered here for a reason, and we get a hint of it from the man's reply uh, very shortly. Uh, so let me uh, just go ahead and review review the passage outline uh, for a moment. This outline was uh, today uh, originally shared by another BSF teaching leader in our discussion around this week's lesson. Her name's Kay Fung Chen. And she says uh, the aim that she found was Father God validates Jesus's divine deity and authority. And it causes us to surrender and submit our lives to Jesus. So there are two divisions here. The first one is Jesus's divine authority demonstrated through his works, verses 1 through 15. So his authority, his divine authority, is demonstrated through his works of physical healing, where in A, verses 1 through 3, he helps the helpless, those misdirected in hope. Jesus' divine authority is for our good, and he helps those who are hopeless in their helplessness, verse 5 through 7, indirect response, where Jesus speaks with divine authority into the man's suffering. And then uh, the third part is healing, verse 8 and 9, direction given. Jesus' divine authority awaits an ultimate manifestation. And the, uh, part B, Jesus demonstrates his divine authority through the truth of his spiritual teaching, verses 10 to 15. And that is in regarding to the Sabbath, a very sacred holiday for the Jews, where they are um, blaming him. But he returns that blame and shows that they are very far from God's divine uh, intention and authority. And that there are no rivals compared to him. B, his teaching regarding sin, verse 14 and 15. His directives are ignored. So Jesus' divine authority brings wholeness when we understand what he says about sin, that it separates us from God. And the principle here is that self-preserving sinners resist Jesus' divine authority to their detriment. To their detriment. And so the second division is Jesus' divine authority is defended verses 16 through 47, by his words. He has claims to unity and equality with the Father. Rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Father's divine authority. And then he, his claims of divine authority are defended uh, by claims to life, his ability to give life and to give judgment. Our response to Jesus' divine authority has eternal consequences. And then the part B says, um, that his divine authority is defended through his witnesses, the present and spoken. They are the present time spoken through his word and by the Father. Jesus' divine authority comes from the Father. And then also was written in the past, which became the word, spoken through the prophets like Moses and the prophets. And those prophets now uh, giving rise to the ultimate prophet, John the Baptist who is the last among the prophets to point to uh, the revelation of God in Jesus. And so Jesus' divine authority can be resisted for, a, resisted for a time, but not ultimately denied. And the principle to take away here is yielding to Jesus' divine authority brings life. Brings life. And I just want to share one more slide. Um, so going back to what all this means, because there's a lot of things here in this chapter to meditate on. The subject sentence or the headline or the thing to be thinking about here is that the Sabbath healing reveals or revealed Jesus' divine authority and exposed Jewish leaders uh, in the faulty way they handled God's word. And we'll see a little bit more of that uh, in the talk. So we have three principles, um, teachings here to kind of rest our minds on. 
and to think deeply about that, one, Jesus has the compassion, the authority, and the power to meet our deepest needs. Two, Jesus has the authority to give life, to judge, and to receive all honor. And then three, the truth about Jesus and his authority exposes the true condition of our human hearts. And some questions for you to think about as we uh, meditate together is, one, with what seemingly hopeless situation is Jesus calling you to trust him? Two, in what ways might you fail to see Jesus for who he really is? And, and are you uh, not fully understanding Jesus' divinity and authority? And three, how willingly do you yield to Jesus' authority in your day-to-day -day walk uh, as a believer? So returning to our uh, look at the passage, this disabled man had been struggling with this disability for 38 years. Some theologians have noted that uh, 30 year, 38 years is an interesting number. Uh, it shows up in Jewish scholarship. Uh, where numbers, uh, according to Jewish scholars, give us additional insight because they echo something that happened before. The only other place where 38 years appear in the scripture is the Hebrews wandering in the desert on the Exodus because, uh, in a sense, they let their worldly circumstances again dictate the nature of their happiness, their self-identity, and their future um, against God's word and God's promises. If you remember, um, they kept complaining against Moses and at one point they wanted to return back to Egypt because they wanted some onions and leeks and they, and they had a faulty view of their past, of their miserable past. And they were complaining against God and God kept telling them that he was trying to make them a great nation for them, for himself. And, but the Israelites could not escape their sense of victimization. They're, you know, feeling like they're victims and that slave mentality, uh, you know, they've been slaves for nearly 400 years against the identity that God wants to give them of a free life, freedom from sin and fear and deliverance into a hope and future that God wanted to give them. You know, interestingly, a person's mind can be their own cage. A person's mind can be their own cage. They say, you are what you eat, but it seems also true, you are what you think. And the Hebrews could not believe into the truth, the liberating truth of God's word. So it is here in the situation with the man who is now lying here by the pool of Bethesda looking for kind of healing, but only in the way that he w is willing to understand it and receive it. So let's look at question three. Describe the physical, emotional, and spiritual condition of the man Jesus sought to heal. The man was uh, lame, debilitated for 38 years. He said that he had no one to help him. He was lonely, abandoned, perhaps and uh, felt uncared for, ignored. And he's here by the pool, waiting for a special kind of intervention that never comes but uh, once in a while, and, and that not on a clock or a calendar. It's an utterly hopeless situation. There's a great sense of defeat when anyone places their entire outlook on life to certain things like a pool, or something happening, or my body being up to it. Body, body being able to perform or being able to meet the challenge. When the body becomes the basis for all of life, there's a great sense of defeat when the body can't perform and when it can't measure up, when it ages and is held back by disease or illness. And sometimes even worship is kept back, a spiritual life is kept back. Sometimes people with a strong body-centric view can't envision how life can go on if they don't have what others have in the flesh. For others, a superstition then becomes their only way out, but even then, that seems cruel because then it becomes a fight like for this man to compete against others to get that miracle, jump into the pool first when it's stirred up by an angel. This is a promise that looks very much like a lottery ticket. The promise that lottery tickets give, a nice house sometimes gives to people's minds. 
the idea of a great promotion or a higher paycheck. If I only had those things, I can do other things. I can get farther. I can be better. I can attain the level of spirituality that I've always wanted. This is the life and worship. Uh, this is a kind of life and worship that's deferred. It's put, put off until things get better, when in fact, when things do get better, it rarely ever turns to a clearer view of our spiritual selves and our spiritual health. I was just in another study group where some business people um, agreed and came to a consensus that money, having more money and having worldly improvements or accomplishments rarely ever make anyone more spiritual. If anything, it made them more proud and more carnal-minded. So here is a man with a life on standby and a spiritual life on hold. Have you felt sometimes the same way? Have you felt uh, you left anything in, in the greater purposes of life on standby? Uh, you could be living into God's will, but it's on hold for now until other things happen. Why has that happened? Uh, and how has it made you feel uh, kind of limited, generally speaking, about life? When we're confronted with uh, things like this, these challenges, like the Hebrews were, we tend to quietly, deep inside, blame God for our obstacles and our limitations. How can we repent about them and seek to work in small steps, prayerfully, to a greater engagement with God and God's will for whatever he might want to do, even through and despite the limitations that we might have? Question 4a asks, why would Jesus ask the question recorded in verse 6? What did the man's answer reveal? In verse 6, Jesus asked the man, do you want to get well? Well, you know, that can seem like a very odd question, given that the man who is, he's obviously not well. But if Jesus had not asked it, we wouldn't know what was going through his mind. And he saw his healing in the narrowest and most unlikely viewpoint possible. Uh, all dependent on that pool, bubbling pool. So it's a stingy view of life, where only one person who fights his way first into the pool is going to be the only one who gets the healing. And uh, everyone else is left uh, in the lurch in deep frustration and disappointment. So it's a very self-limiting view. Jesus wants something greater for him and as well as for all those who put their trust in his name. It is important here to remember uh, very important facts about this story, um, including what's told to us in verse 1. It says there that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a reason. Can you read verse 1 there and see what it says? That it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. And there were several feast days that the Jews observed, and there were very important religious holidays to celebrate the goodness of God by the Jewish calendar. And they all pointed to other realities and truths about God's character and God's promises. And this was one of those festivals that celebrated the joy of their relationship to God and his covenantal promises to them, God's deepest promises and aims for them. So we're having Thanksgiving and Christmas come up. You know, people get generally excited and ready planning meals and gatherings. You probably also have those, you know, heading home for the holidays to meet and, and to be with loved ones. Well, uh, but here is Jesus, not seeking to enjoy himself, but to bring. He goes to the place where people need and they're kind of huddled, self-limiting and kept out of the festival. But he goes there to bring another person into the festival, into the celebration and feast, into the communion table of God, where he calls us to celebrate his love for us. You know, young students of mine often ask me, what is heaven like? And they think I'll tell them it's going to be full of amazing cities, nestled in clouds, people dressed in brilliant white, and everybody happy, laughing, singing, eating, of course, and <laughs> enjoying themselves all the time with people they love. 
And I realized a lot of our visions of heaven is really about humans in self-indulgent picking out on nice things. You know, we're always envisioning how we can pick out. <laughs> and it's made me think how pointless uh, that kind of existence would ultimately be. God tells us something very different about heaven, that it's not described ultimately and most deeply by the descriptions of things that we want, but by more important realities that we ignore. That is, we will be celebrating God's love for us, like the feast that he has ordained and the communion and the feast day, holidays where we celebrate within all he has bountifully uh, given to overflowing in our lives, the goodness of God, the giftings of God, the salvation and the redemption of God. Heaven can only be heaven. Truly, heaven can only be heaven because God is there. And it is only he that makes life and heaven work. And the framework of a glorious future rests entirely with him. Nowhere else and nothing else. We don't make that future as, um, as so much of our culture thinks it, it can. Uh, the future is in his hands. Once we understand this, we start to realize what heaven is more deeply. And then we also start to realize what hell is. Well, Jesus wants to show us something about the identity of God. Let's look more carefully, going to question B. Given the specific commands Jesus spoke when he healed this man and what these commands required, the specific command Jesus gives is for him to, quote, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. So maybe he was astonished that I'm talking about the man. Maybe Jesus reached out his hand and pulled him up. But whatever happened, this man got up, despite all the reasons and excuses that he could have come up with. But Jesus didn't just tell him to get up. He also interestingly tells him to pick up his bed, his mat. It's interesting because in the Christian view of repentance, we don't leave our sinful garbage lying around, polluting and corrupting the space and getting in their way. Jesus wants him to pick up his bed, that dirty, nasty bed that he's been lying on for so long. When we come to Jesus and believe in him as our savior, we come off the corruption, the filth, the pollution where at one time we made our own beds and we take it away. We burn it we, because it's wretched. But there are some of us, even as we say we love Jesus, still lying on some stinking mat, refusing to let it go. So what kinds of old ways from your former walk without God do you still cling to? Even though you have a hunch, it's probably not a good idea. It's probably stinking up your life in some ways that you don't even realize affecting other people around you, probably getting in the way of your loved ones, your children, your spouse. Here Jesus tells us, pick up your bed, take it away. Did you love that existence when you were lying in it, in that mat without Jesus? Uh, this man surely couldn't possibly have. So why do so many of us keep our filthy beds from our old past, like some souvenir from our past lives without God? Are we so wistful for those times being spiritually lost? that we need to keep it. You know, I have countless instances I have, in, uh, you know, encouraged people to get rid of their old way of life, the tokens and souvenirs and idols from their previous way of life. And when they did, when they got rid of it, I have to tell you, they always come back to tell me that they should have done that years ago. The most recent case was a, a brother who continued to smoke marijuana. And he said, as expensive as it was, he threw it all out of, the, out of the trash to his wife's great surprise. Um, and he came back and he was so glad he did it. 
And he, like other people, always come back by saying, I should have done that years ago. I should have done that years ago. I was kind of reluctant before, but can't believe how good it feels now to be rid of it. Yes. <laughs> we have to get rid of our old, decrepit, bad, bad mats and beds that we make uh, from our sinful lives and move forward into the new life and into the celebration God's calling us to. Now, I want to address what happens as a result of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. Remember that Jesus is entering into places where people cannot participate for one reason or another into the celebration of God, where there is heavenly rejoicing going on. Where is this going on? You will find people trying to shut you down because that is where sin and Satan ultimately wants. They want to prevent people from entering into the joy of the Lord. And that is what the Sabbath is. That is what the feast days are. And that is ultimately what heaven is. It is ultimately to rejoice in the presence of the Lord, in the joy of the Lord, participating in the joy of the Lord. So when the man later found Jesus, what did Jesus tell him to do? What might it mean? Well, go and sin no more. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that they cling to. There's a lot of uh, unbelief and rebellion, even as our bodies are made whole. There's a sen sense of self-sufficiency and relying on oneself, my own ingrained beliefs, uh, about uh, how I can't do things, how I cannot recover, I can't come to God for one reason or another, even as he's inviting me to come to him, that we need to drop, uh, to go and sin no more, to recognize that my biggest problems wasn't about my body, but it was about my soul, my spirit, and its rebellion against God. So we see and understand that Jesus is always ultimately interested in the condition of our spirit and our spiritual condition as it relates to him. The body is, is the means to getting us to think about the ultimate problems that we have that hamper our movement toward himself. So if we don't do it his way, if we don't move toward his way, if we don't listen to him, we are not really fully healed. Uh, he may be healed in the body, but there, he's not really healed. He says, Jesus says, stop sinning. Stop letting sin control your life. Sin may be difficult to stop on your own. But pray, make an effort, seek God, and enter into His Sabbath. The timing is not in our control. It's never too late for you in your stage of your life to turn your life over to Christ. We make all kinds of excuses with our age. You don't have to let the life of sin and anything you've done in the past become an obstacle for you to come to Jesus and have your life turned around. Moving to um, the third day, it's where Jesus defends His God-given authority to question Jewish leaders there's a few verses here that are listed. I just want to repeat because they're vitally important. John 5, 16 to 30. So Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath and the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. And by the way, folks, anytime Jesus starts a sentence with, I tell you the truth, that's when you got to get the highlighter out and start marking up your Bibles. It's a very important doctrinal truth and teaching that roots uh, our lives. Our salvation depends on these, these I tell you the truth statements. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. The son is always do only doing what the father does, it says. Verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. And then verse 24, I tell, you the, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. 
He has crossed over from death to life. In verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in, his, in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So, question 7a, what truths about the relationship and work of the Father and Son do you gather from verse 17? Verse 17 said again, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. The Father and the Son are one. So anytime you read, I tell you the truth, uh, let's, we have to pay very close attention to what he says. And he's saying, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do nothing. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So the Son is like a reflection of the Father, right? The reflection can't do anything that the person is not doing. The Father is working and that Jesus does only what he sees his Father doing. And the key work of Jesus' ministry as our Messiah was to bring about, bring as many as would believe him into the celebration and joy in the fellowship with God the Father. So God is presently working and he's continuously working. And his work is in upholding all things, great and small, that he says he will do by his covenantal promises to us. So there are two things being established here. Jesus' claim to deity, divinity. And it's one of the um, first uh, times in this gospel we are getting a glimpse of the Trinitarian view of our monotheistic God. Jesus also was challenging the ritual rules that they had established, man-made rules, because there is a distinction here. One bringing people closer to God's heart, and the other distancing people and the clouding view of God's heart. Part B says, how are you helped by understanding that God is constantly active, even when you fail to recognize what he's doing? Uh, I don't know if you remember that. There's a song that is often sung uh, by young Christian, uh, and there's a refrain in that song that says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. And think of that truth applied to your life. Even when you think you don't see it, you don't feel it, God is working. But it takes so long for us to get our thoughts straight. You know, our thinking is garbled and jumbled. It takes time to straighten out our thoughts and our thinking and our reflections with God and about God. But he's working even there to bring it straight to you. Even when you think he's not working, he's guiding you and directing you to the truth. He's working and deepening your thoughts to the most important thoughts that you will ever have um, and ever need to actually essentially have about the future. Uh, he never stops. He never stops working. And there are divine moments all the time that you enter into you may not even realize. But it's by working and abiding in him, we re realize those divine moments and we give him praise and we we live into, we walk into, we enact with him as Jesus is the way that we ought to be in God, working alongside and doing as he is calling us to. A special work of ministry wherever uh, the spheres of influence and work that he has placed us. The Jews had it right when they called God the living God. He is always working. There's not an unsacred moment in our lives, especially in those times of difficulty moments still. In those difficulties, God is working. In the mundane, the sufferings, the trials. There's To God, there's no time he's not working. All moments of life are sacred and divine moments. Going on to question nine, what is your proper response to these aspects of Jesus' divinity and uh, divine authority? Well, again, there's an important truth that adds to our insight into the Trinity. 
The only way we approach the Father is through the one who is the bridge, the perfect representation of the Father in the Son. And this Son, um, as one uh, boxer used to say, it's not bragging if you can back it up. And Jesus is always backing it up. He was always able to back up the claims he made. He raised people. He, he healed people. He raised people from the dead. No one in humanity ever said and did the things that he did. Raise up a body after a few days of decay? No one's ever done that. Jesus was able to back it up with amazing powers that no one ever seen or experienced, never even read about. As a fact, he backed up his claims and had the testimonies of those people who were there to witness it with him. So this is the Messiah that the prophets prophesied about. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And question 10 asks about what are the confirming testimonies uh, and uh, Therefore, that testify of Jesus here, uh, Jesus reminds us that it's John the Baptist. His very works testifies to who he is. And then also Father, Father God testifies to Jesus. And the scriptures written by Moses and the prophets testify to his claims. In Luke 24, 27, uh, one of them says, In the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And John 5, 39, Jesus says, you, dil you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And then John 5, 37, 38, And the Father who sent me has tes himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So these are really important words. Um, this is a question that actually a lot of people, non-believers in the world, are going to be asking about Jesus. Why should I believe in Jesus? What do you have to back up your claims? And you can say that the gospel, the writings, the scriptures, John the Baptist, the great last prophet, who was also a relative of Jesus, who was the one who lived concurrently with the Messiah and pointed directly to him, uh, not with words, but only, but with body, uh, baptizing him. And uh, the baptism is also an amazing, uh, powerful, uh, incredibly uh, rich picture of everything that God had promised for us in the past, to the present, and then into the future. And then the Father testifies, as does the very works that Jesus undertakes for us and shows himself through. So what reasons did Jesus give in this passage for people's refusal to believe? Verse 42 says, Jesus tells them that people refuse to believe because they do not have the love of God in their hearts. And that is so true. They just don't care about God. He's, he's not on their radar or even in the affections that they have for anything. People will believe what they want to believe and they will accept the testimony of what they want to accept. But Jesus shows us the proof of life and not only his life, but the proof of another human being, many others who have seen his works, and then the testimony of God the Father. In all the things that he's created, all creation bear testimony of Jesus himself. We see that, that in the world around us. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Sabbath was made for man, so that man would remember God and turn to God. Of all the times that we have getting distracted with our personal affairs, the Sabbath was a kind of date night, <laughs> for lack of a better word. A kind of stepping away and spending time with God, singularly focused on God, where we rejoice in remembering and relating to God, who is our great, great, precious joy. He is our everything. Jesus sought to bring all those incapacitated from one thing or another into the festival and into the Sabbath day of rejoicing. 
Sabbath is not only a reminder of our salvation, but it is also a reminder of heaven when our joy is made complete by being united with God in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you, for you are the Lord of the Sabbath. For you are the one that, Lord, brings us to yourself. And heaven is nothing without you if you are not there. You are heaven itself. And we thank you, Lord, for that reminder that all things, Lord, are consummated in our relationship with you. It is you that we desire. It is you that we need. And we praise you, Lord, for bringing that awareness to us in this account on chapter 5. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.